This is episode number 148 with General Counsel and Vice President for Ethics and Compliance at Georgia Tech, Ling Ling Ni. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today I bring you Ling Ling Ni. She is General Counsel and Vice President for Ethics and Compliance at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Ling Ling was hired by Georgia Tech last year after a nationwide search for that position. Georgia Tech experienced an unfortunate scandal that resulted in the firing of several high-up officials, which resulted in them looking to fill this position. Ling Ling talks about the advantages and disadvantages of being the new person at an organization, her biggest challenges early on, and the importance of setting expectations as a leader, how to release stress, and so much more. Out of law school, Ling Ling had no idea what she wanted to do and was envious of her friends that did. So she talks about how she went about finding what her passion really was, which will be super relatable for a lot of you out there who are wanting to find your passion. Make sure you take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and let me know your favorite part. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who is trying to climb the ladder in their career or trying to find their passion. Send them this episode to get firsthand knowledge about how Ling Ling did it so they can learn from her experiences, her advice, and her tips. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with the resilient Ling Ling Ni. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super excited today to have Ling Ling Ni with me today. So Ling Ling, I just want to start off by saying thanks for spending the time with me here today. I'm very happy to do that. It's a beautiful Friday. I'm glad to be spending it with you and all of your listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. So to introduce you, everybody, uh, Ling Ling is the General Counsel and Vice President for Ethics and Compliance at Georgia Tech. Um, you worked uh, for seven years with, with Panasonic Corporation, with five years with the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Um, and so I've never really talked or had too much of an in-depth conversation with anybody with this kind of job role before. So I was thinking about it today. This is going to be a really unique conversation for me to really genuinely want to learn about more of kind of like that job role and, and what it takes to to have their role that you have. Um, and so I know we're going to get into kind of how to build trustworthy relationships, how to handle different crises, um, some leadership stuff and ethics in the workplace. And you're also a very avid mountain biker. We just talked about how you have six mountain or six different bikes for kind of different uses. So I'm excited to kind of dive into a little bit of that as well. But the way I want to start today is we had talked beforehand about how kind of your career path is pretty unique. And I wanted to dive a little bit into that. First off, you were born in London. Is that correct? That is right. I was born okay. in London. That's where my parents met um, as students. And so that's uh, where they created me. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. So you were born in London. And then you went to UGA, actually, where I went to school, which is how uh, we ended up connecting. Uh, and then you majored in political science and German. And then you went to law school at Washington and Lee. And then essentially you ended up getting to work for the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So I kind of want you to, I guess, take me along the timeline and you talked about before how your career path was so so unique. So I want you to just kind of discuss and tell people how it was unique and take us along that journey a little bit. Well, I think I'm I think I'm not unique in the sense that a lot of students in law school don't really know what type of law they want to practice. Um, but I think 
maybe the unique aspect of, of my career path really is that I was truly clueless in a way that maybe others aren't. Um, you know, for the longest time, my goal was to go to law school. Um, and so when, once I did that and I got there, I didn't really know what what's next. You know, I got there and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Um, to be honest, the 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 curriculum um, wasn't very inspiring. Um, studying sort of the mechanics of the law, the history of the law was just not all that interesting to me. And I did think after my first year that I was going to going to leave and try to do something different. Um, but I'd already invested a year. I know my parents would have been very disappointed. Um, so I thought, you know, I don't want to give up. Let me just finish this 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 uh, this degree. Um, and even once I graduated, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I was very envious of my classmates who knew very specifically, you know, that they wanted to be a public interest attorney or they wanted to be a prosecutor or they wanted to be, you know, an M&A, you know, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. Um, so for me, it was really a few years of exploration um, and process of elimination and trying to figure out what's really going to inspire me to have a job that wasn't a job, but really was something I enjoyed doing. Um, so um, initially I came out doing um, divorce and medical malpractice work, which is fascinating. And it's like literally and figuratively, it's like the bloodiest type of litigation that you can do. <laughs> um, and it was enjoyable. I think I learned a lot about, you know, myself, my skill sets, what's my strengths and what's my weaknesses. Um, but I kind of wanted to keep looking around. And a lot of my classmates were in Washington, D.C. They had gone to work for the federal government. And so I thought that might be something I could be good at, um, you know, policymaking and sort of regulations and, and all the things that I thought, you know, federal government did. So I luckily landed a job um, at one of the bureaus of the Treasury Department, which is called the United States Mint, which makes all our coins. And then from there, sort of worked my way up into the what they call main treasury, which is the department that oversees a number of bureaus. Um, and I got into kind of ethics and compliance work at that point. Um, you know, during the financial crisis, there were a lot of really talented folks from Wall Street that were brought in to come and help us solve the, the global crisis with their cre creativity. Um, but, you know, a lot of them had a lot of investments, so we had to make sure there weren't many conflicts. Um, so that was part of my job there as well. Um, and then from there, I thought, you know, let me try something different. And I sort of moved back into the private sector world, found a, found a gig at Panasonic and built out further my experience in ethics and compliance and really, you know, realized at that point, this is what I really enjoyed doing because it kind of plays to my natural strengths. And from there, uh, uh, I just kept chug chug chugging along and, and here I am now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to take it back a little bit because I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, like the, the phrase like chase your passion, do what you want to do is so popular and so many people are taking action on those phrases. But for you, you like you weren't, you weren't too passionate about it right away, right? But you kind of developed a, develop a fondness for it, if you will. And you got, you, you kind of found your niche. So like, what's your message? Like early on, you were, you were a year in, and I'm sure a lot of people are a year in at law school and they're like, oh, I'm not really sure if this is for me because it's a lot of work. Um, and a lot of people probably don't super love it right away. So like, what's the balance of like, stick it out versus go find something else that you enjoy more? Like, how do you determine which action you take? I think if you have already identified what is going to strike a chord um, in terms of what's your passion, then I think you should go in and do that. 
Um, for me, I didn't know. For me, I, I wasn't happy where I was what, with what I was doing, but I didn't yet even, I couldn't even articulate for myself what it is that I wanted to do. So without, a, without, a, without an identified sort of uh, objective or specific sort of um, path to follow, um, I didn't think it made sense to just, you know, leave and sort of, you know, be like a, a leaf in the wind sort of floating around. Um, but I think if you are on one path and you have already identified, you know, something else that's going to be a lot more rewarding, um, I think at that point you can make a really informed decision about um, changing course. But for me, I didn't have yet, I hadn't yet articulated what that was going to be for me. Yeah, no, I, I actually really like that, um, how you distinguished that. Like if you have an idea of another avenue that you want to go down, then, then go for it. But if you're kind of still lacking clarity for where you want to go, then continue to go because then where else, where else is there to, to what try else out? What else are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when you kept going, what, what were the, were, were there any like couple of experiences that stand out for you that gave you a little bit more clarity towards what you wanted to go pursue? Um, no, I think even upon graduation, I still was pretty, unsure about, you know, where I would end up. The only thing I really committed myself to at, the, at graduation was to pass the bar and then continue searching, you know, and, and meaningfully searching, not just sort of, um, not, not sort of letting the wind blow me where I needed to go, but sort of intentionally making decisions um, to put myself in different fields so I can explore if this is what, if this is the right fit for me. Mm, yeah. And I, I really liked how you talked about, when you were struggling to figure out what that clarity was is like you weren't not taking action because you didn't know you were willing to go out and explore and figure out what it is that you did like by the process of trial and error. Because I think that is how a lot of people figure out what they do want to do is they figure out what they don't want to do first and kind of weed those things out. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, there's no shame in that. I think sometimes when you look at really successful people, um, there's this, maybe misconception that all the stars aligned for them and there were no missteps and there were no moments of doubt. But I think if you ask them to really walk you through their career, I think they probably experienced a lot of these same situations and feelings. Yeah. And so where, so where I want to go now is your title, right? Is general counsel and vice president for ethics and compliance. So for somebody, and I didn't really have too much have an idea before looking at looking into it more what exactly maybe that job description would look like and the words ethics and comp- ethics and compliance people have probably a general idea of what those words mean but might not be able to put a job description to it in their heads so briefly just describe maybe in and is it easy to understand way as possible what that exactly means for a job title yeah, so ethics and compliance is actually a practice area for attorneys, much the same way employment law or divorce or, you know, securities is. It's just an area of the law that you as a lawyer can go into. And sort of the modern day concept of ethics and compliance was really kind of born in the United States um, with the multiple kind of corporate scandals you saw in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, like Enron. And what resulted in that is you have the Department of Justice and other sort of um, similar agencies that work alongside them, like the FBI, coming up with guidelines that companies really need to follow um, um, in order to ensure kind of the integrity of, of, the, of the decisions that are made there um, and to ensure things aren't being done in a corrupt manner. 
so what came out of that are standards um, for compliance and ethics programs that all companies really need to have um, to demonstrate the company's commitment to making sure they're doing business the right way. Um, so when you hear of an attorney who works in ethics and compliance, what they're charged with is, is supporting a program that provides education and tools to all of their employees about the key areas of law they need to comply with, um, giving them training, um, showing them the importance of this so that they can go about their business and, and, and make decisions the right way. Um, and there are penalties if you don't have um, a great program. Um, because with any corporation, you cannot control, you know, the behaviors and actions of all of your employees. And certainly at some point, someone's going to do something wrong. Someone's going to do something unlawful. Um, but if you can demonstrate to the government that you have a program that meets all the criteria that they have laid out, um, more times than not, that company will not face prosecution. Maybe that individual will, but the company won't face corporate liability. So it's really key for companies to make these programs a priority because it's a real protection for them um, when things go sideways with some of their folks. Are are most of the problems that you that you guys see in terms of it, of breaking the ethic their ethics and compliance uh, program is it mostly from like employees within it or is it like the company as a whole that makes the uh, that makes the the problem or makes the mistake like where exactly is usually that guy or is that usually that program crossed? Well, I think when it comes to, you know, what drives sort of bad behavior, um, certainly there are bad actors that will not be persuaded to do things the right way, regardless of what you say. Um, so there's that group of people, but that's the small minority, I think, of what drives bad decision making. Um, mostly it's culture. Um, what types of people does this company um, promote? What types of people does this company hire? Um, and that's where this ethics and, ethics and compliance program really comes into play because it shapes the culture of the type of employee we want to have working here. So what are the kinds of things that are within these ethics programs that you guys teach to different businesses, if you will, that allow them to foster that kind of a culture with good behavior? Um, it's, a combination of substantive training on laws that need to be complied with um, and leadership training um, because the culture of an organization comes from its leadership. So we do a lot of training on, you know, and this is probably the boring part of this, this, this conversation. We do a lot of training on like anti-corruption law, sort of antitrust law, privacy, exports, all those sort of substantive components of a corporate compliance program. Um, and on the culture side, we do training about, you know, what is ethical decision making? How as a leader can you empower your staff to make the right decisions and to flag areas where they're concerned um, about decisions not being made appropriately or processes are not lending itself to, to good decision making? So it's a little bit of a combination of both substance and also sort of behavioral training as well. Yeah, so of those two different avenues of kind of the the substance and the behavioral, if those are the two different avenues, which of those avenues is usually the area where people make the mistake in? Is it by just literally not knowing the substance or the laws and stuff like that? Or is it usually the actual behavior person, the actual behavioral bad decision that somebody kind of knows they're doing it and then try to tries to hide it? Um, I think it, I think it really depends. Um, I don't think there's one or the other that seems to be 
more of a more of a problem. Um, every company is different. Every culture is different. Um, I've seen companies where everybody is, and this is not great, but everyone's sort of hell bent on on not following the rules because they know if they do, they're going to fall behind and not be competitive. Um, and then I've seen companies where there's just um, a total lack of leadership. Um, so it really just depends on the type of company. Um, if you're looking to see like a root cause analysis of where the problems are coming, it really depends on that particular company's culture and the pressure they may be facing at that po- at that point at that point. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to now talk a little bit about transition a little bit more back to you and how you just you were hired by Georgia Tech with be almost a year ago now. Almost a year, yeah. Almost, almost a, year. a year ago now. So you were with Panasonic in a few different roles for about seven years, if I understand correctly. And then Georgia Tech hired you, they say, after a nationwide search for the role. Um, and so basically what I want to ask you is, why do they pick you? Was it like a specific <laughs> – Yeah, it's, like a, it's a chance for you to brag on yourself a little bit. Uh, so was it like – was it like a maybe like a specific quality, skill – um, like a personality fit, or why do you think that you were the one that they ended up kind of choosing? You know, when it comes to jobs, sometimes you can't anticipate, you know, what is dictating that particular need for that role. Um, so when you go up for a job or you start looking for a job, um, it's important to remember that so you don't take things personally. Um, because you have no clue what's going on behind the scenes and what's driving the decision-making. But in this case, um, and after the fact, after I got to Georgia Tech, I was sort of let in a little bit on, you know, what it was about about me that was appealing. Um, They had gone through some challenges at their leadership level. Um, Several executives were were fired, which is something that's very uncommon in a higher education um, public university, um, were fired because of some ethical mishaps. And so what they really wanted to do was hit the refresh button on their culture and come in and have someone come in and build a, a program um, that will help give assurances to not only the employees there, but also the public who have a stake in a public you know, university, um, give them assurances that stuff like that won't happen again. And so what they found appealing about me is that I have a career that involves building these types of programs from the ground up. Um, and that's what they were looking for in terms of skill set for this particular role, in addition to someone who could really invigorate and um, kind of, I guess, give birth to a, a new vision on legal department management. So it's basically a job with, you know, two responsibilities, one to, to lead the legal team um, and to build an ethics and compliance program and to do both um, consistent with sort of best in class standards. Mm-hmm. So with you coming in, kind of with them hitting this refresh button, as you say, what were maybe some of the biggest challenges early on? So like they just did just go through like this huge, um, you know, scandal, if you will, where there are a few higher, higher ups were fired. So you're coming in with this huge refresh button, everything, a lot of things are going to change. What were some of your biggest challenges early on when you when you started the role? I'll just leave it at that. I think the the biggest challenges early on was inspiring and motivating people um, that the change that was coming was going to be a good thing. Um, I think when an organization has taken a couple, you know, punches, 
Um, they're going to feel a little bit disheartened, a little bit uh, discouraged about what the future is going to look like. Um, so I think the challenge coming in was mobilizing my team to really get behind, you know, what I was brought here to do. Um, because, you know, the reality is I'd never worked in higher education before. So I had a lot of blind spots in terms of subject matter expertise. And I knew I could not be successful if I didn't have my team behind me. So the immediate challenge, I think, was just making sure I could, I could, I could inspire and empower and motivate my team to, to get behind me um, and help me do what I needed to do and why they hired me to, you know, to do, um, help me do what they hired me to do, basically. Yeah. So what were the, some of the most important things in order to kind of enroll them in your vision, you know, to, uh, is it, is it like clearly making sure you clearly communicate exactly what your plan is and why that's your plan? Is it them getting to trust you as a person? Like what were some of the th- most important things that you had to do in order to get them behind you and enroll them with what you were trying to implement? I think it's just sort of human, um, the human uh, experience of developing trust with people and showing them that you're, you're here for them. Um, you know, they didn't know me from Adam, you know, I'm a stranger, I'm an outsider coming in. And so there was a lot of, I think, anxiety about, you know, who is this person and what is she going to do? So to the extent um, that I could, I always involved them in kind of the larger decision-making um, that had to be made to kind of put the wheels in motion for, you know, bringing this change to the department. Um, so I think, you know, very strategically working closely with your team and allowing them input into the process is a first step to building that type of trust. They understand that we are a team. I'm not just some, someone sitting at the top of a, you know, a pyramid, you know, proclaiming edicts and changing things without understanding how it really affects them directly. So I think, um, you know, building that trust is important by involving them in the process. And that was a good way to kind of start the relationship off on the right foot. And yeah, expectations are important too. Um, Something I've told people a lot is I think as a leader, one of the more undervalued qualities, but one that's very critical is being predictable. And what I mean by that is your expectations for your team should be crystal clear at all times um, so that they know what they have to perform to. So they know what they're accountable for. If you're sort of changing the target and moving it around all the time, how can your team perform to your expectations? So it's important that you lay out what you expect and that you stick with it. I mean, certainly over time, as priorities change, as the organization's you know, goals change, there's some tweaking there. But for the most part, you know, what you expect them to perform to should be pretty consistent and should be um, pretty much understood so that there's no, there's no confusion about what they're accountable for. Yeah. I'm, I'm big on being clear and, and, um, and cl- setting that expectation. I heard a quote not too long ago that an expectation that's not communicated is simply just a thought. And it's like, if nobody knows what that thought is, and then, then there's no clear action that they should take in order to be able to reach the expectation of their leader. Um, but it, it's kind of along the same lines, this next question that I'm going to ask, what's, what are some things that you had to do differently coming in, having not been a part of this school or organization prior that you wouldn't have had to do if you were part of the school and just got like promoted to this position per se? Um, there's, advantages and disadvantages to being kind of the new kid on the block and coming from a different neighborhood, so to speak. Um, 
I think the advantage is that you don't know what the constraints are um, in that particular organization that are sort of creating barriers at times for those who have lived in that company for a long time. So in some ways, you're a little bit more fearless. In some ways, you're a little bit more nimble and creative um, because you don't feel like you're restricted by these, I guess, norms or expectations. Um, so I think one of the benefits of bringing somebody new in was that I didn't know what I don't know. Uh, and so I'm not limited by that. Um, um, so that was definitely an advantage. Um, a disadvantage coming in is I don't have the relationships that some people there have had for years. In higher education, there seems to be long tenures or people work there for most of their careers. And so these people become family. Um, so I definitely was an outsider. And, um, you know, the way I address that is making sure that those on my team who have those relationships, again, are supportive of what I'm trying to do so I can leverage the relationships that they've built uh, over the years. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. I like the advantage a lot. Um, I think that's something that is super helpful to not hold you back from doing something that you would uh, other otherwise do. So, is there is there any like specific example that you can think of that you maybe did something that somebody who was there would have seen as a constraint, but because you had no prior knowledge, you did anyway? But maybe somebody said afterwards, like, "Did you actually do that?" Like, is there any like example like that that you can maybe think of? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, most companies have policies, you know, that you have to follow for whatever, you know, whether it's a, a, an employment policy or it's a procurement policy or, you know, some IT policy. There are policies everywhere. Um, but I've never worked anywhere where there are so many policies, you know, than, than working at Georgia Tech as a public university. Um, and so while there are written policies, there's also sort of um, – practices that aren't really written anywhere, but are sort of followed pretty much consistently because that's the way things have always been done. So there were times when, you know, we needed to make a decision on probably taking a different approach with respect to, you know, how we handle an employment matter um, that, uh, that in that situation, I sort of, you know, would propose taking a, a course of action that everyone else really would shy away from because that's not what they've done. It's not how they do things. Um, but to my surprise, that, that wasn't really met critically. It was actually met with sort of, um, um, I guess, relief, <laughs> a little bit of relief, a little bit of um, um, optimism that, you know, I'm not going to be someone that's going to do things just because they've always been done that way. So, yeah, there were, there were a lot of proposals that were talked about in various um, areas where um, I didn't typically follow what people had done in the past and it was, it was, it was well received. So, um, um, you know, I, it's hard to come up with specific situations cause I do it yeah. every day in little ways, but yeah, I think, I think, um, having that ability to not be sort of restricted by what people have always done has, has been a great asset for me. No, I love that. That's cool. So, and I don't, I have no idea how many people like in, in a position similar to this and it could be, it could be in different corporations or it could be in uh, public universities, but how many females have roles like you in other corporations and uh, in, in public universities? Is it usually male dominated? Is it usually female dominated? Is it half and half? What's that usually, what's that look like? Well, um, a general counsel also called like a chief legal officer, you know, that's an executive role. And like most executive positions, women haven't been 
you know, um, you know, uh, sort of the predominant um, group in those roles for years. Um, you know, when you think about corporate America or just corporations, you know, they were built by men. And so the qualities that they look for in promoting people to these positions are ones that they've sort of defined as ideal. Um, but as time has gone on, you're seeing a lot more female executives at all levels, CEOs, general counsels, chief financial officers. I and mean, if you just go on LinkedIn, you see all these announcements of, of new promotions and new appointments. And, and more often than not, you're seeing many more women um, being you know, moved into those roles. So um, I would say there are probably more female general counsels than there are female G female um, CEOs, for example. Um, but uh, I think uh, the skills that it takes to be a successful general counsel are ones that both men and women, both men and women have, but it's helpful to see more women in these roles because it inspires those who, you know, look like them to want to wanna achieve those things too. Right. So no, I, I think that's awesome. And I, I think that, like you said, more and more women are now going to leadership roles. So I want to ask you more for you, for you personally, what are some of the different, like maybe traits or skills that you've acquired or maybe actions that you've taken that have allowed you to kind of rise into leadership roles that maybe other women don't always take? Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to sort of stereotype and, and say, you know, it's women who don't embody these characteristics and that's yeah I, I'm not I'm not meaning to do I'm not meaning to do that either I'm more just I, I want other people to hear it and be like oh wait like I, I should try to have that skill I should try to acqu acquire that trait I should also take that action um, because I want to be in a leadership position too a male or female I think it really comes down to confidence um, there are lots of really talented people out there who would make tremendous leaders but for whatever reason, have never felt um, the confidence to pursue it. Um, whether it be they don't see anyone in those roles who looks like them, um, whether it be someone in their lives holding them back. Um, I think really addressing confidence for both men and women is what's going to help people um, achieve, you know, the highest levels of of their career that they're really looking to aspire to. Um, and it's a, it's a journey, you know, trying to develop confidence. It's something I still work on every single day. Um, but, you know, there's that saying that confidence is a muscle. You know, you just got to practice it, fake it a little bit until you feel comfortable. Um, then it becomes part of who you are. So what are some of the things then early on in your career that started to give you the confidence to continue to, like, pursue further endeavors in your career? Um, I think it was really strong mentorship from people who were in the roles that I was aspiring to, um, especially the mentors who are really candid about their journey. Because um, like I said earlier, sometimes you look at really successful people and you just think everything just worked out for them so easily, um, whether it be they had this really illustrious sort of, you know, pedigree of academic achievements or they had all these connections that they could leverage, you know, uh, sometimes you think, you know, I'm not like that at all. So how could I even be anything like you, you know, when I grow up? Um, but the mentors that have been most helpful are the ones that say, you know, it wasn't like that for me. You know, I, I was bullied as a child or I did terribly in school, you know, but I really wanted to achieve X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I just, you know, applied myself and, and kept that goal like right in the front, you know, right, right in front of me so I would never lose sight of it. Um, so I think just talking to people who have achieved what I wanted to, to achieve or what I thought I wanted to achieve was really helpful for me. 
And, and like you said, really hearing their kind of setbacks, their challenges and, and the lessons that they have learned to realize that it's not always smooth sailing. Cause I think, I think, I think that's, I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of people, when they hit a bump in the road, that's when they lose their confidence. But if you realize that other people have those, then maybe your confidence is less shaken than it could have been. Yeah. I mean, resilience is key. Resilience is key. We're always going to experience failure and it's how you bounce back. Um, that's really going to test, you know, what type of person you are, what kind of character you have. Mm-hmm. So what are, now that you're, you know, have, have had the confidence to continue to pursue and, and have had leadership roles, what are some of the maybe leadership qualities that you feel that you have that you are, you feel are good, but that you're continually working on to get better? Like, what are those things that you're really focused on right now to improve your own leadership? I think when you when you get to a general counsel role, um, what's valuable is not so much your legal skills, you know, the way you might handle a particular litigation or how you might draft a contract. Those become less important. And what becomes very important is your ability to make strategic decisions um, and think about the broader impact of what your legal department does for an organization, um, that your, your value to the company is not just in turning and, and turning around contracts, but it's helping your president make decisions um, fully aware of the, the landmines that might be there and ki- giving him or her you know, ideas and proposals to mitigate them as much as possible. So I think... Uh, at a general counsel level, what makes you successful is being able to work well with others across the organization, across any function, and developing a relationship that is authentic and meaningful so that when you say, you know, this is a landmine we don't want to stop, step on, you know, they'll believe you. Um, and it's not sort of a, a fight to have to influence or persuade at that point because you have that credibility, you know, that you've worked on by building that sort of personal relationship with them. So I think that's more the skill set that really drives you to a higher level. Okay. Yeah. So we've talked a, a good amount about kind of trusting relationships and and how to and, and building and how the important that was and has been for you, especially in, in kind of coming into this new role. How quickly do you think somebody can build trust with somebody else? And what are ways, what are like the conversations that people should be having in order to more quickly, not in an inauthentic way, but just more quickly, authentically build trust with somebody else? Um, I think um, you have to remove sort of whatever strategic objectives you have in facilitating a connection with that person, whether it be to advance, you know, your department objectives or what, and really just remember that we're all human beings just coming to work. and connecting with people at a very human level is extremely meaningful. Um, like you said, you know, when we before we started this conversation, asking someone, you know, what made you smile today? You know, are you having a good day? Just having those basic human questions to each other, um, I think, is what makes um, building relationships successful. Um, but you really have to divorce in your mind, you know, why you're trying to build that relationship with someone and really make it meaningful um, at the end of the day. Yeah, I like that. I guess not really like having a conversation with no really agenda, just kind of going in with it, asking them human questions outside of work, like in a work setting, but outside of work almost. 
Yeah, I mean, you can imagine most of the the big deals that are made, like in in the world, are over dinner or over a lunch. You know, they're not really in a office or across you know a large boardroom. You know, by the time you get to a boardroom to sign a deal, most of the conversations that needed to take place have already taken place outside of the office. So that's a uh, that's something important to remember. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So we, I mentioned the mountain bike in the background uh, when we started the interview. So I want to get a little bit into it. I know you're a huge mountain biker. You like, like I mentioned before, you have six different bikes for different things. So what what initially got you into mountain biking? Uh, well, this right here is a road bike. My mountain okay. bike downstairs. They're very dirty and muddy, so I wouldn't bring them upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's um, it was honestly stress relief. Um, I've always felt like for really high performing, you know, individuals who are trying to be successful at the highest levels, you almost have to train like an athlete in many ways, um, mm. because the emotional toll, the mental toll that these jobs take on you are, I mean, it's not um, something to, to, to kind of like laugh at. It's very serious. People break down you know, over these things. I think lawyers have the highest rate of, you know, alcohol and substance abuse because of the stress mm. of these jobs. And so you need to make sure that you're training your body and your mind to be able to endure um, during these really difficult times. And so for me, I needed to make sure I had an outlet that allowed me to recover, to take care of myself and kind of enjoy, you know, being alive. Um, Because that makes me a better attorney. I can better withstand all the pressure that's thrown my way on a daily basis. So I picked up cycling in general just as a way to to kind of um, just deal with stress, you know, a way to exercise my body at the same level that my mind was being exercised at at work with all the stress that was coming um, in my direction. So that's how it kind of started out. Um, And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities, I think, in learning to mountain bike specifically um, and kind of building your career because with mountain biking, you get sort of incrementally better. You know, the more you do it, um, you might not be able to ride over a tree route today, but with practice, maybe next week you'll be able to do that. And then it could be a gigantic log or a huge boulder, you know, maybe in a year. Um, And that's how I kind of approach my career as well. You know, there are certain conversations that are very complex and very nuanced that you need to really build up your EQ um, to be able to handle. And so I like kind of um, activities where you need to build your skills over time because I think it's very similar to to being a successful attorney. Yeah. Was there a particular time when you were mountain biking, you kind of like learned a lesson, you were like, oh, wait, like this is something that's really important that I'm like learning right now that I can kind of apply to my life. Was there any kind of experience like that? Um, Well, actually, you know, when you're able to clear a, a, a jump or something that you weren't able to do before, it's so thrilling to know that you started out being, you know, so scared. And now here you are on the other side of that jump and you're completely fine and you did it successfully. And I think that kind of triggered in my mind um, that idea of mentorship because so many people pick up mountain biking all the time. And for them, it's very scary. Um, but if you're someone who's relatively new and you're able to come up to speed and kind of get some skills pretty quickly, um, you're a better sort of um, relatable kind of person for those coming up to to really reach out to and, and get the confidence to see that they could do that as well. Um, and in my career, I've always tried to be a good mentor to people who may be looking 
high above on to the top of a mountain wondering how am I ever going to get there? You know what I mean? Um, and kind of showing people the steps you can take to make it an easier path for them um, is something I really enjoy doing. And in mountain biking, I saw the same opportunity. So it's kind of interesting to see those similarities too. Yeah, I like that. And I did not expect for uh, that to be where you went with it, the, the, the mentorship <laughs> thing. No, I think that, no, but I think that's awesome. I, I think that's really cool. Um, so you are involved in a, in a good, in a good number of things and you are such a, you, you strive to be such a high performer and kind of improve probably in a lot of areas of life. I'm more of like of a macro question. How do you go about defining what success looks like for yourself and like the different areas of life, probably even more so outside of your career? Because I feel like in a lot of careers, there are, there's a little bit more of a defined path being like, you know, this is making you a little bit more successful and that sort of thing. But how do you go about defining success in your life when there's not such a defined path as to what that looks like? I think success is maybe not a a job title um, or a, uh, a salary, you know, for me. Um, for me, it's an experience that I chase. Um, and for me, success is you know, having a good time and helping as many as people, helping as many people as I can along the way. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I thought about my career, I don't want a, a job that I have to take a break from or that I need a vacation from, you know, I want a career or a job that I really enjoy. And that is fun for me. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about work-life balance and getting away and all of that. Um, and I kind of, more, I, I'm more in the camp of work-life integration, you know, and the fact that we have a lot of personal errands that need to be taken care of to make sure, you know, our lights stay on in our house. And so I like a life where you can kind of integrate those tasks into, into your career. And I don't really think of my job as something I need to balance with other things to escape from my job. Um, I think for me, success is not something that, you know, is a a defined kind of like role. It's really just an experience. And that's what I look for when I, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, what's my next job, what's my next gig going to be, it's going to be, am I going to have a good time? And am I, and I'm going to be able to help people. Um, And that's what kind of helps me make those decisions. Yeah, no, but I think that's, I think that's exactly what I was looking for. I think that being able to kind of see that aim up there of like, I'm my success for me when I'm aiming at is, is happiness and, you know, kind of like work, life integration, if you will. And for you to be able to kind of have that clarity of what you're, that's what you're looking for. That's kind of what you take into account when you're potentially pursuing another job and that sort of a thing. Yeah. I mean, there was, I remember at one point I was going to change jobs a couple of years back and I really was struggling with whether or not I should do it. I just have both the opportunity I was in at the moment and the one that was in front of me were both great opportunities. I just didn't know how to decide. And and um, this guy that I knew, he was a very successful chief financial officer at some of the largest companies um, that we know of. He said, you know, the best way to do that, you know, is make a list of the things that you like and don't like in life, not in your career, but just as a person. What are the things you like and don't like? And so for me, I was like, okay, I don't like small spaces. Um, things that I do like, I like big spaces. Things that I don't like, I don't like cold weather. You know, just really basic things that you like and dislike. And then you take that 
and lay it over the two different opportunities you might have in front of you, I think it makes it a little bit easier to, to figure out which one's going to really bring you joy in terms of your career. And so in this example, the other opportunity for me was up in, um, in New York City. I don't like small spaces and I don't like cold weather. You know, so once I, can ha- once I kind of articulated for myself at a human level, what are the things that, that I prefer and don't prefer? It was a lot easier to make that decision because I knew when you move to the city, you know, it's real dense and it's cold. Um, and I don't know if that would make me happy. And in the end, I decided it wouldn't. So after doing that exercise, I, 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 it was much clearer to me about what I should be doing. Yeah, I, I like that exercise a lot in doing it outside of the job role itself because I think it gives you a little bit more perspective in terms of will I enjoy this or not. And again, kind of like splitting it up in between. It's like, you know, we talked about trust in order to build trust with somebody else. It's like you need to take yourself out of the work setting. And it's like almost like to make the, the right choice for yourself. You need to take yourself out of the work setting and really reflect on the true your true priorities and what you do enjoy and then and then overlay it after that yeah you gotta look at it from all angles because i think sometimes when you're really challenged to make a decision between two opportunities you tend to get very narrowly focused on you know the 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 job itself you know how much will i be making how many people will i be supervising you know what types of travel will i have to to do you know and you forget that you know underneath all of that is are you going to be happy doing all of it? And so you can't forget that part. Yeah, I like that a lot. So is there any is there any decision that you made early on in your career that was maybe like a super important decision that you made early on, but you didn't realize the significance of it until later? I think making the decision to move from the government to the private sector turned out to be a lot more significant than I thought it would be, than I thought it would be. Um, I did that just because I have a short attention span and I like to challenge myself constantly. Um, so I wanted to do something new, but I think what it did looking back, it kind of put me on this path to being a leader in the legal world, um, because it was giving me a lot more exposure, um, diversifying my skill set, so that when it came time to start considering, you know, a general counsel role, I had a lot more of a, a broader sort of portfolio that I could really point to as, as reasons why I could succeed in a, in a higher level role. But I think at the time I was just wanting to do something different, um, but not really realizing that that was kind of, you know, carving out my, 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 uh, my experience um, and making me well suited for, you know, pursuing something much higher level later on. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so I'm going to be down to the last couple questions. So I think that, Getting closer to the best version of yourself is a process of creation and detection. And I'm using, I actually got that phrase from somebody that I interviewed a while back. And it kind of goes to what you were talking about with your career, how like you weren't really sure you didn't have too much clarity as to what you wanted to do. So you didn't, you had to do a lot of detection in terms of like what that, what that vision looked like for you. But you also kind of have to like go out there and create things and you have to experience yourself and you have to move. And so in that way, it's your career, finding out what your career is is also kind of a process of creation and detection. And so with that being said, I want to ask you, is there a specific skill or piece of knowledge that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Hmm. Very good question. This is helping me plan. This is helping me plan my life. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. 
<laughs> you're welcome. Self-reflect <laughs> and think about my, my future. Um, I would say dealing with pressure is a constant challenge. Um, and as you move up in an organization, as you move up in your career, the pressure just gets more intense. Um, you think, you know, being at a high level means you get this fancy title and you get paid more, but it's because you have to deal so much with um, all sorts of unpredictable um, aspects of other people's lives and of the environment or even the, you know, things like the economy, you kind of drive, you know, what a company ends up prioritizing. So all these things factor into the intense pressure that you, you experience. And it's still a work in progress for me to figure out the most effective way to deal with that. I mean, I have my cycling, I've got, um, I started playing polo recently as a, a distraction, you know, to kind of get me um, to clear my mind and, and deal with pressure better. But I don't know, I think maybe the best version of me will have found, you know, the, the four or five things that I can do in specific situations to help alleviate kind of the, the stress and the pressure that comes with a job. So I'm still searching for, for that one or two activities that are kind of like the cure. Um, I don't know if it exists, but I think the best version of me will have the answer to that question. <laughs> I got you. Before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you, Ling Ling, because I think, well, I want to acknowledge you early on for sticking, basically like sticking your career out. I feel like so many people, especially nowadays, are so quick to pull the trigger to jump to something else if they dislike something. And I think for you to be able to have the willingness to stay on that pursuit of detection of what exactly it is that you want to do. And by going through that process by trial and error, I think that's just the best way to do it. And I think that your willingness to do that is something very much to be acknowledged and for you to be able to have the confidence in yourself to continue to climb up um, different leadership positions um, is something that I think is uh super inspiring and hopefully it's inspiring for other people to uh, want to imitate uh, the things that you've done. Absolutely. This has been really fun. Um, just kind of talking to you because I feel like you're very inspiring just in the things that you do. I love your energy. Like we were talking earlier. I just love all the content you're putting out there. I think you do a great job of letting people know that, you know, being the best version of you is achievable you know i think if you try to think about it as an end game it's overwhelming because you're like how on earth am i going to get to that point but if you kind of break it down and say well it's, it's decisions you make every day it's habits that you build every day um those are the things that ultimately in the end will bring out the best version of you i love that message i think that's really really motivating i like that a lot well i appreciate it yeah i just want to make sure that everybody every single day is kind of going along that constant journey intentionally. Like, I think that's probably if more than anything, that's the best way that I can say what my goal is. Yeah. Yeah. And it must be really rewarding for you because I think you do some like personal training as well, right? Finding what it is that drives each of your clients. So it's going to be different. I'm sure, you know, what's going to push them to the next level. Um, I think that's probably really fun trying to identify that with, any given person, because it's like you said, it's, uh, you know, everyone's journey is different, you know, everyone's had different experiences. And that must be pretty rewarding. Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. So the uh, the last question I want to ask is, I think, as we've just been discussing the becoming the best version of yourself, I believe is a constant journey. I don't think we're ever to that person. But hopefully on our last day, we can take our last breath. Uh, 
with the confidence that we got as close as we could. And, uh, and I also think it's, I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you become the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask for you is if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? The three things I could currently do or work on to become the best version of myself um, would be, I think, one is, I guess we talked about one already, which is finding a really, a really, um, a really effective outlet, you know, for, for, for stress. Um, and I'm always in search of that, you know, um, but we'll, we'll see what, how that, how that ends up. But I think that's one thing that I'm currently doing, um, that, that will help me get to be the best version of myself. Um, the second one is remembering, you know, to put family first um, because, you know, they are what have supported me my whole life. And as you get very busy, sometimes your contacts and touch points with your family get fewer and fewer just because we're all living our own lives. But making sure they're the center of sort of my world is something that will help me continue to be on track to be the best version of myself. And I think three, just um, appreciating um, the things that are sort of uh, simple and free, you know, like being outside. Now I can't even tell you how many times when I've gotten stressed, I just walk outside and stare at the sky and then you come back in feeling completely reinvigorated. So I think yeah. it's not losing sight of the fact that we live on this beautiful earth and there's so many wonderful things to appreciate about it to help put things into perspective. Yeah, appreciate your your three dogs and and let them smile. Let, let them make you smile every day, right? Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. Sometimes I wish I was a dog. Life seems so easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they definitely have zero zero responsibility for the most part. So in that sense, yeah, <laughs> sleep all day long. You know, they don't have to look for food or pay for their food. I mean, it's great. <laughs> Somebody else picks up their poop. I know. That's like, oh my God. That's like the, that's like the dream, right? <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, that's all we got. I appreciate it so much. It was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. I had a really fun time talking with you um, and I hope we'll stay in touch. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ling Ling and hearing her insights on leadership and on relieving stress. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you go leave it a quick review on the Apple podcast app or on iTunes. I try to bring you guys week in and week out some of the best people in the entire world in their industries. So all I ask in return is maybe a quick review, maybe sharing it with your friends, or maybe just posting about it on social media, just whatever we can do to spread the words and spread these inspiring stories so we can all get closer to the best version of ourselves together. Remember, if you're searching for what you're passionate about, you're not going to find it sitting on the couch. You've got to go out and you've got to do. You've got to do as many things as you can as often as you can, because one of the best ways to determine what you want to do It's determining what you don't want to do. Remember, if you're a leader, to set clear expectations for your team. Make sure they are crystal clear on what you're going to hold them accountable for and they're crystal clear on what success looks like. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you're listening, you probably want to improve every single day. Am I right? You probably watch informative YouTube videos, read great articles, listen to other podcasts, read books. So is there anyone you would like me to interview on this show? If so, send me a DM on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and let me know who you want to interview. Maybe it's a favorite author, a favorite YouTube personality, or a favorite podcast host. Whatever it is, let me know. And if you do this, I promise I'll make it worthwhile for you by rewarding you with something special. 
But for now, it's time. Time to take action. If you're listening to this, you probably get stressed out sometimes. So find out what might be a good outlet for that stress. Maybe it's working out. I know it is for me. Running, yoga, mountain biking, or time with friends. But remember, whatever it is, to give yourself time in that outlet to keep your head on straight. It's super important to allow yourself that so you can get closer and closer to your best you. You.